Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. Join me today in a conversation with Marion Maas. Marion Maas attended Penn State University Duke Medical School and did her training in pediatrics at Robert Lurie Children's Hospital. She twice ran nonpartisan symposiums on medical care at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., most recently at the Free to Care Conference on April 1st, 2019. Marion founded Practicing Physicians of America with Dr. Westby Fisher of Chicago in 2017. She and her husband, Stephen, have practiced in Bucks County for over 20 years. America spends 19% of its GDP on healthcare and the mm-hmm. you achieve results that are probably not better than anywhere else in the world, certainly not better than other developed countries like the UK, Australia mm-hmm. and other places. Why do you think that is? What percent of the healthcare dollar in America is spent on physicians, the most highly trained people in the system? You tell me. Less than 8%. Yeah, right? And I can pull up an article for you. Mm. And it's in some of the white papers that I've written. Mm. And I never actually go in and say, pay me more. And if you look at, you know, me and every other pediatrician in America, we're the bottom of the pay scale barrel. Like, (laughs) no one pointed us and say, well, you're making money off this healthcare system because we're the bottom of the barrel, Mm. right? So I don't mind that because I went into peds knowing I'd be the bottom of the barrel. I just sort of say, well, if we are, as physicians, if overall we are 8% of the healthcare dollar, uh, where's that other 92 cents going, right? And no one's looking at that. And why is no one looking at that? Well, who makes the rules? You know, our lawmakers make the rules and our lawmakers make laws. And who do you think is encouraging them to make the laws on healthcare? The 92 cents. Bingo. So like it's with anything. I mean, education is the same problem in our country, probably car manufacturer. Everyone tells me, oh, everything is working this way. And I'm like, well, good. You work on the everything. I'll work on the portion that I can have the say in. Mm. Uh, Show me the money. Pull back the curtain. Where's the money going? I mean, we're now sitting in a spot in America where, and I I do not consider healthcare insurance to be commensurate with care. Insurance in America is not commensurate with care. That's probably true in Britain. Whatever they're spending and you know by the government is not commensurate with the actual care that happens, right? So there's a this divergence between who pays and who's giving care. And it's because there's this sort of like hidden curtain and we're supposed to think like uh oh uh well we we can't be as caregivers. You know, we can't be the people that are discussing the cost of things, but that's actually absurd, right? If you want to follow what I do, I probably work like 50, 60, sometimes 80 hours a week doing stuff that I don't get paid for. And I don't mind at all. And that's on top of being a pediatrician who's making less than the plumber per hour. I don't mind. I like the plumber too. When my pipes break, I want him. But who's following and trying to figure out in America who's making all that money? Mm. That's the fascinating part because what we need to be doing is taking the money that's being made by people that are offering very, very little value and dissecting that part out so that the American patient is not continuing to every single year pay more and more and more and more and get less and less and less. So anyway, that's my 
Well, we know where the money is going. We know that it's going into pharma. We know that it's going into interventions that are dubious. We know it's going into surgeries that are unnecessary. We know that there's over-servicing of patients. We know this. But what can we, you and I, as, as clinicians, do about it? We are evidence-based people. So we have to dissect the system. And I've spent four or five years doing that. And it's going into those places that you mentioned, but it's going into other places as well. So take, for instance, pharma. I'm not going to paint them to be altar boys, right? Because they're not altar boys. You know, they're, they're, they're in the business to make money, but at least pharma is providing a product. They're providing research. They're providing something of value. In America, we have pharmaceutical middlemen. I don't know if you have them in Australia. Our pharmaceutical middlemen in the insurance company space, they're they're called PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers. And if you come to America, you'll see they're all over the news. There's, a, there's three big ones that control 85% of the PBM market. These are the people who are deciding what medications go in the formularies. The formularies are what the insurance companies pay for. And the formularies are done by different tiers. You know, you would think it's magic. And it's like a really complicated system, really convoluted. Well, this is astounding. But these PBMs, have the right to receive monetary remuneration from the pharmaceutical companies themselves. And you could guess who gave them this right to receive these legalized kickbacks. It's our government. But then you have to take it a step back. How do these people working with the insurance companies making the formularies have the right to receive legalized kickbacks? Because in 1987, the pharmacy benefit managers control the outpatient pharmaceutical prescription market. They're the ones that are deciding who goes on the formularies for the insurance company. The PBMs took their right to legalized kickbacks off of a statute that happened in 1987. It was signed by President Reagan. For the PBMs got their rights to kickbacks, groups that control the entire hospital supply chain called group purchasing organizations. They were granted the right to legalize kickbacks in a little statute stuffed into the 1987 Medicare and Medicaid Patient Protection Act. It's called the Safe Harbor Act for the GPOs. So the people who were controlling the hospital supply lines, the nursing home supply lines, and you know in America, everyone's living longer for now, so the nursing home supply lines are big as well. So those people are called group purchasing organizations, and they were granted the right to legalize kickbacks by our Congress in 1987, signed by President Reagan. And then in 2003, G.W. Bush's HHS secretary, HHS is the Health and Human Services. It's the big, it's the biggest healthcare, it's the healthcare cabinet. And so the HHS secretary is the most important cabinet position in America. So Bush's HHS secretary, he gave like he wrote like a little like administrative diktat, you know, which has become popular in our country in recent years. Obama did a bunch of them. Now Trump's doing a bunch of them. And when Bush's HHS secretary, a man named Michael Leavitt, I believe, he signed as an HHS secretary, he gave the pharmacy benefit managers the right to have legalized kickbacks wafting off of the GPO kickbacks. Astounding, right? So now we have two sets of groups in America, one who came to control 85% of the pharmaceutical 
outpatient prescription medications and one that controls 90% of hospital inpatient supplies. And supplies don't just mean drugs, means solutions, means devices, means bedpans, means sheets, means state, whatever's in the hospital. So a 90% of the hospital and nursing home supplies, 85% of the prescription drug markets, those two groups that are controlling those areas have the right to receive legalized kickbacks. Huge conflict of interest, huge money. Neither of these groups are doing research. Neither of them are manufacturing. Neither of them are even bothering to ship the supplies. They've got the middlemen for that or the, um, the big distributors. And those three groups, the big distributors, have special relationships apparently with the GPOs and the PBMs. Those groups that are the distributors, the GPOs, the PBMs, and then you take the big pharma that they're consorting with. Both of them are consorting with big pharma. Both of them are consorting with device makers. Both of them, uh, the PBMs are consorting with big insurance. The GPOs are consorting with our big hospital networks. And so now all of these groups together, uh, unfortunately, a lot of them are funding our, we call it our uh, legacy medical groups. You know, I don't know what you have in Australia. We have something called the American Medical Association, the AMA. It's down to less than 15% of practicing physicians. That's why I, with Wes Fisher, started Practicing Physicians of America, because doctors in America don't feel like we have a group at the national level that supports us. So you pointed out big pharma, you pointed out big insurance, but you know the other kind of insidious players are these middlemen, the big hospitals. You know We could bring the big healthcare IT people in there. And all these people are, of course, stuffing money into the government's pockets. It's not on one side of the aisle. It's the right and the left. You know, I took an oath. You took an oath. When you practice medicine, we're in it for the patient. Well, these people are stomping on my patients. And they're costing my patients money. And they're causing my patients to not take their medications, not be able to afford their hospitalizations. In some cases, we're, we're in having drug shortages of common supplies. Epinephrine, saline solution bicarb solution, magnesium, pitocin, things that are necessary, life-saving, life-sustaining, insulin, not in shortage, but very high cost. Mm. And these people are preventing us from getting our patients, especially those with pre-existing conditions, what we need. And, you know, quite frankly, I'm getting tired of it. And uh, bottom line is, is they are making it impossible for me to keep my Hippocratic oath and tweet, blowing the whistle, drawing the line, done here. Mm. Not going to happen anymore mm. if I can do anything about it. Mm. So what would you say to our medical students, young men and women in their 20s and 30s, get entering into this profession, doing what you and I did? They're taking this Hippocratic Oath and they are, they're in the business, they think they're getting into the business of helping people. And yet they're facing the reality in the US and increasingly other parts of the world where commercial interests are beginning to impact on them practicing the art. What would you say to them? What would I say to them? I would say it's a very worthwhile career, but please understand if you go into this and you take that oath, you have to really think about taking that oath because I now no longer see the oath as only taking care of my patient. I see it as protecting my patient against this system that is hurting them and that is preventing me from keeping my oath, which is the whole idea of practicing physicians of America in the first place. Let me practice as I was trained. 
as I was taught to take care of my patient. We are very impatient as doctors. We want things done for our patients sooner rather than later. You know, waiting for the politicians to change the law is, it's going to take, it's going to take a while. In the meantime, in the meantime, what would you like to see happen sooner rather than later? Well, sooner rather than later, I'd like to see kickbacks repealed for companies that have little value. Mm. I mean, that's just pretty basic, right? I mean, shouldn't we not want kickbacks? And, you know, if if you want to get into nuances of things, the people that are collecting the kickbacks continually say, but we're saving money, we're saving money, we're saving money. Well, is anyone in America saving money in healthcare? If they are, <laughs> please tell us, because we don't see that happening and our patients don't. Then what other things uh, then might you want to see? Well, I'd like to see these contracts that are between the people taking the kickbacks and the companies making the manufacturing. That would be helpful because then maybe we could prove for once and for all that you're not saving money or robbing the system of $200 billion per year by conservative estimates. Did you hear that one? $200 billion per year. I think you could solve like the problems of maybe Alzheimer's, AIDS, and a huge chunk of the cancer problem with that $200 billion per year. At an individual level, the doctors who will qualify this year, you're telling them to be very thoughtful about the oath that they're about to take because they may find it difficult to actually live up to that oath. What else? What else could they do? There's no going back. They, they are going to qualify this year. There's no question. They're committed to this. So where to from here? Yes. So eyes wide open with respect to that oath, but not just respect to that oath. We have to look into the system. How is this? I don't even like calling it a system because the system makes it sound like it's a so impersonal. With respect to the landscape of healthcare, pay attention, dissect it. Don't listen. Don't, you, know, you know, one of the best attendings that I ever had in my training was someone who said to me, don't trust anyone. Don't even trust me. And I would tell medical students that when I was a resident and, and then when I was teaching as an attending, I would tell them that as well. Don't trust anyone. Don't trust me. Dissect it yourself. Find out whatever it is that you need to find out, whether it's for a medical um, issue, like dissecting the evidence-based medicine behind something. It's the people who question that are really going to change the system. I mean, you know, your Linus Paulings of the world, your Edward Jenners of the world, the people who questioned and didn't just like listen to the status quo. That's who you should want to be. Who do you want to be? You want to be the person who takes a look at the overall landscape. And if you're you know, a healthcare reformer speaking for your patients, okay, well, I want to take this system, pull it apart, peek behind the curtain. I'm not going to just trust every person who says to me, there's so many people out there that just parrot ideas. The two biggest parrots going on right now, repeal Obamacare and Medicare for all. Those are gigantic parrots of ideas. I, I think it's, I just told you about a United States system that is allowing legalized kickbacks for people that have gigantic conflicts of interest. That should be a big break on the Medicare for all idea, don't you think? Because I don't want a government running the system that's allowing this to go on, mm. a huge conflict of interest. By the same token, everyone's looking at Obamacare as, you know, it, it is the law of the land, and that's perfectly true. But it, right now, because it's so entrenched, if you repealed it, I think it would cause a gigantic mess. So I always tell people, like, those are two big slogans. 
that people that are on the left and on the right like to yell at each other. Mm. And that enables the people who are in power, the red menace and the blue plague in America, to stay in, in office. Nothing gets done. They all keep their power. They all keep the status quo. And we go on paying way much, paying more, and getting less as citizens. Where do I tell these people it's fourth years to go forward? Go forward. Stop listening to just talking points. Stop being a parrot. Use your brain. You've got a good brain if you got through medical school, residency, whatever you did. Use that brain of yours and let's not just use your brain as a thinking tool to figure out how to make things better, but you've got some great tools to be someone who collaborates, who coordinates, who discusses, who diagnoses who decides upon treatments, who has to deal with a patient who doesn't want treatment X, Y, or Z. Let's use all those tools and let's come up with a solution together. I'm going to go back to the thing where we started this conversation. You talked about a patient who came in with a concussion and had a pain in their Mm -hmm. chest and probably had bruised ribs. From the nature of the injury, it's perfectly reasonable Mm -hmm. to assume that they've bruised their rib. There is no treatment you find it very difficult to persuade that mother that she didn't need that child to have an x-ray. In this case, I didn't. The mother was perfectly reasonable. You know, okay. we had the conversation about it. But sometimes you do find that situation. And that is a challenge for us because that's clearly where we have a role as physicians mm-hmm. in stopping the over-servicing of our patients, in costing, mm-hmm. in costing everybody more to treat simple things. Mm-hmm. How would you tackle that? All right. So right now, and now we're going to get to another big word that I like to use these days. Um, And I had a great conversation with another pediatrician. He's older, a couple generations older than me. Uh, But the word is trust. And so where we are suffering in the United States is we're suffering from a lack of trust in the medical system. And part of the reason for the lack of trust is because we're fragmented as a system. It's really remarkable. Like, And it's funny because when I look at the way that the system has evolved over the past uh, decade or so, we've become a big system. You know, like in America, like there's people that like to think about the little guy, like having small pockets of independent businesses that take care of people. And I think like in the medical system, that works much better to inculcate trust than when you have a gigantic system where everyone feels like they're just a cog in the wheel like you're lining up at the meat counter or the deli counter and you're taking a number. Mm. Um, I think we've lost trust in the American medical system because we have lost time with the patient. So I want to say, I I believe it was about in the 1980s is where this number is from. But in the 1980s, the American sick visit was approximately 20 minutes and the American well care visit was approximately 30 minutes. We're down to seven minutes for the sick visit and 15 minutes for the well visit. How do you inculcate trust in seven minutes or 15 minutes? And worse yet, if you're in a fragmented system where there's many, many physicians and people that are not even physician providers, and then there's uh, the layers of bureaucracy, whether it's the government uh, that's paying or the insurance company that's paying, how do you have trust in this system? You don't, you know, so I think you take it back to that patient. And I think it's a little bit of an art to be able to, to, in a short period of time, make 
the patient feel as though they should trust you and believe what you say. You know, but medicine's an imprecise art, you know, and I always tell patients, well, I think your patient, your child has X, but they may in fact have something else and we have to follow the history and watch X, Y, Z, P, D, Q. Then one of the most trusting things you can do is tell the patient, I'm not 100% sure. Mm. I always say, I'm not saying aha to you. I'm saying, hmm, <laughs> like that's my little like, you know, way to get, I suppose, to give myself my out. You know, I'm saying, hmm, I'm not really sure what you have here. This is what I think. Yeah. This is what I want you to watch for. But it's hard to go down every decision tree. Yes. So I think um, gaining trust happens when we gain time. And we won't gain time back until we get rid of a lot of the useless noise that we are made to do in the American healthcare system. Mm. I mean, the mandates that we have, uh, the our HHS secretary has so much power that was written into the last giant healthcare law that we had written in our country. Kathleen Sebelius, one of our recent HHS secretaries, I believe she's responsible for, I think it's something like 11,000 pages of mandates mm. and laws and regulations. It's a lot of regulations. Us, the nurses, so many people in healthcare are all busy checking boxes, filling out regulations. It's keeping us from that time with our patients. That loss of time is eroding the trust. The trust is eroding our ability to say to patients, this is what we believe you need to do. Yeah. You've clearly thought deeply about the, the business that you're in. Tell me a little bit about that. Tell me about the things that you've been involved in in the light of all of this that you've talked about, you know, the kickbacks, the erosion of time, mm. the loss of trust, et cetera, et cetera. Where are you leading us in this path? I hope I'm leading us to a place where it's the physicians that act, that are actually facing the patients. It's some of the patients themselves who have dissected the system. Uh, it's maybe the bedside nurses who are also facing the patients alongside of us as partners. I hope it's a group of us that are getting together and being able to craft a seat at the table, not a seat at the table that's like just stuffing money into the pockets of the lawmakers, which is what our lobbyists do in Washington, D.C., but a seat at the table that is blowing the whistle and saying, enough. What you are doing as lawmakers for decades and what you've done what you've done for decades, is not helping. It's not fixing the problem. And as the people that are the patients or the people that face the patients, we are going to tell you how to help. Because as lawmakers, you take an oath. As physicians, we take an oath. You know, I don't think nurses take an oath. Okay, so the people that face the patients, I think we should be having more to say. And the people that are the special interests making all the money should be having less to say. And the patients should realize, oh my goodness, it's all of these people making the money that are, you know, wrecking the system for everyone. Tweet, blow the whistle, drain the pool. Let's fill the pool with clear water so that we can all see the bottom and make sure that there's no murky, uh, disgusting creatures <laughs> swimming around in the pool. Okay. So that's where I'm leading us. And by the way, I think it will enact a systems change in American politics if we can do this in healthcare, because healthcare, it's an awful lot of money in terms of our lobbying. Marian Mas, it's been a great honor speaking with you today. You clearly are very passionate, and not just about the cause, but about your patients. And it comes across, you care about patients. And that is what's driving you, that you care about your patients, you care about people. 
And that's what makes this such a wonderful experience for me and for people who will be listening to this podcast. So thank you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at www.journalofhealthdesign.com.